0: We think elected officials have the power because we elect them, but what you don't realize when you're behind the scenes is they don't. Who really has the power, Bill, is a series of cronies, bureaucrats, paid-off insiders. Former Secret Service agent turned radio talk host Dan Bongino
1: today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. A new nationally syndicated radio talk show is premiering this week. Its host is conservative commentator Dan Bongino, who for several years was a Secret Service agent whose assignments included the presidential protective detail. After unsuccessful bids for the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House, Bongino turned to writing books and to radio. I met him in 2013 after he'd written a book called Life Inside the Bubble. So here now from 2013,
0: Dan Bongino... What happened was I I started writing kind of a diary of my campaign for the U.S. Senate after leaving the Secret Service um, just to kind of remember it for my own sake. I mean, so many interesting things happen to you, Bill, Mm -hmm. running for office, especially as a former Secret Service agent. And I just thought this is an interesting story, being in front of the podium, protecting the president, and now being behind the podium, giving speeches. And as it came together, I would read it to my wife and a couple friends, and I read it to one of my uh, campaign Staffers and I remember her saying this is a really interesting book. So that's uh, the genesis of how it started. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm, I'm thinking you've almost got two sets of stories to tell: the Secret Service years, the running for Senate campaign, and now you're embarking on another campaign soon. I gather. Yeah. You know, so I mean, you've almost got the two stories, but how you blend those stories is very interesting.
0: Yeah, and, and it and it really became almost in the end. The only problem I had, because you're right, it is two separate stories. It's kind of a Dan Bongino in the Secret Service walking through what it's like, I mean, viscerally what it's like to be an agent behind the scenes at the, the highest levels. And uh, it, it's kind of a hoorah story in some, but again, I didn't want to... I, I, I never gave up any private conversations or anything like that. Well, you wouldn't security. have been able to do that by law, would no, you? <laughs> I, uh, no, I wouldn't, but even morally and ethically, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been the right thing to do. So it's, I'm very careful to be very delicate with the information. And then there's this, like you said, this dividing line into, okay, you were now protecting these guys. Now you're these guys. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I tell uh, my story about what it's like to be an actual candidate. And it, it's, it's quite interesting, this shift. And the umbrella theme in the end that I think pulled it all together is... You know, my critique of what's wrong with government in general now having seen it from both sides. I'm also intrigued by why you left the Secret Service in the first place and got
1: into politics because that's like, you know, frying pan and meat fry, meat fire. You know, it's I gather that you were hearing things in your duties as an agent that, you know, we're we're not talking about secret things. We're talking about public speeches that you were hearing that were just...
0: Uh, something was 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 wrong in your mind. Yeah, they there was a lot of public speeches. It was a lot of just the basic mechanics of government that you're there to watch. And, you know, the analogy I always give people is, that, you know, if you didn't see or hear about it on a you know a news channel, a t- cable news channel, then I, I don't talk about it in a book. In other words, mm-hmm. nothing that happened behind the scenes that would give anything away. But, yeah, you do see things that really uh, run toward, that, that, that just really turn you off. And you start to realize that, you know, government... Had, It's like um, uh, they have the B people in New York, you know, the bus boys and the bartenders. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that really have the power, not the Mm -hmm. bar owner. Uh, You know, we kind of laugh about it. Well, it's kind of that way in government as well. You know, we think elected officials have the power because we elect them, but what you don't realize when you're behind the scenes is they don't. Who really has the power, Bill, is a series of cronies, bureaucrats, Mm -hmm. paid off insiders. And and keep in mind, I'm a Republican, but that's a bipartisan critique. Mm -hmm. So any Democrat, let's go, oh, he's just talking about President Obama. That's not accurate.
1: It's also, as I was getting into your book, I realized this is also not a modern phenomenon, is it? Hasn't there been graft and corruption and bribery and influence and all this pretty much since the Founding Fathers' Day?
0: Yeah, there, there have, but my... In the afterword of the book, I try to sum it up and give that umbrella theme that there's a soft tyranny to a growing bureaucracy. And the reason I find it to be so perilous today is the bureaucracy, just numerically, due to our population growth and the size of our government, is expanding now at such a rapid rate, Bill, that I'm afraid at this point we may have passed that event horizon when we can control this thing. And the examples I give in the book, I think are pretty clear of real world damage that has been done. It's easy for me to throw out a term like that, the growing bureaucracy, but I give you an example of how it's really affecting you right now. Now, when you talk about bureaucracy, you're talking things like the TSA, the IRS,
1: uh, agencies like that?
0: Yeah. and uh, Well, I give a very specific example about Benghazi, how the bureaucracy, the growing amorphous fog in the State Department, has really insulated what you would consider decision-makers, presidential appointees, and and on the ground people know what's going on from each other so what you get is you get a situation like benghazi where mrs clinton uh... you know the the secretary of state actually says and i quote it in the book like oh it got lost in the bureaucracy in oh. other words like are, well who's responsible like you can't just blame the bureaucracy and and that's the problem well we
1: just heard within the last twenty four hours the president say that he never heard directly that the obamacare website was not going to work properly didn't anybody maybe tell him
0: indirectly? I mean, right. shouldn't he know these things? Well, you look at the Obamacare as a perfect example with HHS. Then uh, the Boston incident where the, the Sarnia brothers were in the actual government computer tides and nobody knew. Benghazi, nobody knew there was a security request, allegedly. I write about Fast and Furious at the end of the book, how although Lanny Brewer um, was there getting a briefing on this, they later said, oh, we didn't know. The AP mm-hmm. on James Rosen. You have uh, Eric Holder saying, oh, I didn't know, even though he signed it. Now, that that has to beg a question, folks. If this was a private company where every product they put out failed, at some point, does anybody have to be held responsible? Of course they would. But in the government, we just accepted, oh, yeah, it's just a bureaucracy. Well, in our civics classes, we were told Congress and the president
1: are responsible. We elected them. We can unelect them. We can you right. know, We can elect somebody else the next time. Now, as you're saying, we have thousands, tens of thousands of bureaucrats we didn't elect, we didn't choose, we don't even know who what their names are. They're making decisions.
0: They are, and, and that's uh, you just brought up a great point, because that is we do have this thing, you know, term limits are self-imposed mm-hmm. by voters. I mean, like I always say, I support term limits, but we have them every two years in Congress. Mm-hmm. And people, the incumbent uh, re-election rate is over 90%. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, there's a joke out It's not actually a joke. It's a real number. But uh, the the, uh, the Politburo had a higher rate of turnover than the U.S. Congress. <laughs> and it, it's true. <laughs> um, and, and that's the thing. When you empower this bureaucratic fog and you have a term limit, you get new folks who come in and try to change things but don't understand the process and the ability to complicate a process so much empowers those bureaucrats because the Congress folks, men and women, have to turn to these bureaucrats and say, how does this work? So that's where this is expanding and really causing real problems for Americans. After this short break, would Dan Bongino have been any different from any
1: other politician? Now, back to my 2013 interview with Dan Bongino. Now, the question that you had to face on the campaign trail last year was, well, Dan, hundreds of politicians have gone to Washington saying, I'm going to clean up this town. I'm going to defeat the graft and corruption. I'm not going to follow. What would make you different that you would be immune to the, the same kinds of influences from the the bribes, the the, the, the lobbyists and, and the special interests? Not bribes. I didn't mean to say that in there. but No, I, you know, I don't I mean,
0: think just, it's inaccurate. It's, I mean, we've yeah, seen it. Uh, it don't it, mean to
1: you know, cast any aspersions yeah. here. But, I mean, why would you have... Had you had you gone to Washington then, or if you go now in this next race that you're up for, how are you going to be doing any different?
0: Yeah, that's a fair question, and the way I always answer that is the, one of the reasons I ran is having been enmeshed in the in the DC uh, the, the cesspool of Washington D.C. for as long as I was. There's really nothing you can – the allure of it's gone. You know, Bill? It's kind of like uh, – I guess if you're in uh, – you just made it up from AAA, right? And You've never been in Camden Yards, and you're one of the O's players. And, and you go out there on the field, there's like a nervousness. Like, oh, my gosh, I'm playing in front of all these fans. I'm in Camden Yards. I'm the center fielder for the first time. And then, you know, you look over at Manny Machado, and he's cool as ice because it's just he's been desensitized to the allure of it, and that allure has behavioral effects. You may be nervous, man. Well, in D.C., it's not that much different. What I saw when I was there is you'd see these rookie congressmen. They'd come over, these, these first termers, and they'd get invited to the White House. And the allure of the White House would so frighten them into submission that you would see. I mean, there's one incident I remember specifically where a guy came in ideologically aligned with one position and walked out completely differently. That's all gone to me. I worked in the White House for five years, been on all the Air Force One rides behind the scenes. There's no allure to it. I'm there on, on principle and principle only. I'm, there's nothing you can sell me. Does a person, does a representative in Congress, a representative
1: or a senator, do they have two constituencies? Do they have the one back home, and then do they have the one in
0: Washington that they're? I mean, are they beholden to two different groups? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why I, the, the the funny part about the book, um, you know, the "Life Inside the Bubble," the title. Uh, when we were trying to figure out a title, we were kind of joking around, the publisher and I, and I said, you know, at D.C., it's just so strange. We were talking about the theme of the book. I said, it's almost like a bubble, like doesn't exist in the real world. I go, life inside that bubble is really strange because it's only reflective. You never see outside of it. You only mm-hmm. see behind you and all these people clapping for you all the time. So, yeah, your question's uh, uh, spot on. There are two separate worlds. There's there's this Washington, D.C. bubble where everybody pats themselves on the back. I mean, I've been to meetings where congressmen on both sides are talking and it's like they're talking about things like, do you guys ever knock on doors? Like, this is not what people are saying at all. What Do you live on Mars? So that D.C. bubble is a completely separate world. So, yes, there are two constituencies. Now, in the
1: days now leading up to the official publication date of your book, it's already number 70 on Amazon. At yeah. least the last time I checked, anyway. That puts you in the stratosphere. Why? I mean, what what is it about your book that you think – I mean, aside from the fact you have a great story, you're a skilled writer – what is it about your book that's attracting so many readers?
0: Oh yeah, thanks. Yeah, we got as low as sixty-two. I was really impressed, and we haven't left the top thousand. Even though it's not even available available yet in a while. Um, I gave I sent out a lot of advanced copies to you know mm. thought leaders. Uh, you know, like yourself, people have a profile out there. A lot of in, in the blog community as well. I think that's one mistake some authors make is mm-hmm. they disregard new media. Listen, these blog folks have a, mm-hmm. a good following <laughs> and they do good work. Um, they read it and it. I mean, I'm I'm saying it myself, I don't want to sound ridiculous, but it's a good book. I mean, I put a lot of work into mm-hmm. it. It's an interesting story. Everybody wants to know uh, what it's like behind the scenes, what it's like to be, you know, Secret Service in the White House and then to run for office. And I think a lot of folks want to know why he did it. And I think the theme of the book kind of really sets up then how a guy could walk away from it all um, and do it. But I just want to warn you, folks, you're expecting anything salacious, like, here's what President Obama eats for dinner. It's not that book. <laughs> I, I'm actually very complimentary of him personally in the chapter on his inauguration. So you mm-hmm. won't even reveal what kind of mustard he likes. On sandwich <laughs> well, he like said Grey Poupon <laughs> once <laughs> in a taped interview. So, again, if you heard it on fair the game. air, yeah, it's go. fair game, right?
1: Do you, think, do you think the Obama mystique is over?
0: Yeah, um, I do. And he is a nice guy. Every time I say that, I get a lot of nasty emails. But folks, I, I mean, his policies, I think, have really done a lot of damage to the nation. I think we have a fair fight politically. I think it's completely disingenuous and unnecessary to paint it as anything other than a political fight. You know, we this is not a banana republic. We, we do our, our damage at the voting booths here. We don't need to get personal back and forth. But the mystique, the aura, of the Obama change agent a uh, theme is, is I think, 100% gone. I think Obamacare, you know, you can deceive about Benghazi and all this other stuff, the IRS scandal, AP, but when people get a mailer in their mailbox saying, your, your insurance is canceled, mm-hmm. political ideology goes out the window. These are folks with kids. I mm-hmm. mean, we, you know, we were talking before about that cancer patient. This mm-hmm. is real stuff. And, you know, the,
1: the the most fascinating part to me about all this, your entire story is, you would have taken a bullet for this man.
0: Oh, absolutely! In a heartbeat. I, I I loved what I did. You would have jumped in front of him to take the bullet. Him, his kids, his wife—they uh, were all very, very. Pl- I mean, it's 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 a, it's an amazing family. They're really wonderful people. You know, I was proud of what I did, and I, I know, and I understand um the, the other line that may say, hey, listen, well, you had an obligation to not, you know, say anything. You were a Secret Service agent. But I disagree. I think that in a way, politically, he brought the Secret Service into this as well with that shutting down of the White House tours and blaming the service. You know, I feel the need in some way um, to call out the process. I mean, what do you just You know, buried six feet deep in a box with information you think could have changed the world for the better without using anything salacious or violating that sacred oath. It was my responsibility, I think, to do it. I say to folks all the time, Bill, if they think this is a get-rich scheme, I encourage you to look at my open FEC filings. It's a get-poor scheme. And I gave up everything. It is not a lot of money in books, I promise you. Well, that, that's the thing. That's a dirty little secret about
1: publishing. Nobody makes any money unless your name is James Patterson. Oh, or yeah, <laughs> yeah it's
0: like 1% of all authors right. make money. I mean, I gave up my salary, health care, and everything wow. for this. So don't, don't think for a second this was some get-rich scheme. It really was an effort to change this place for the better.
1: Did you have to get it officially vetted through any agency or anything? Or?
0: Um, if I would have been disclosing, anything that involved operational security measures but it's really written from an umbrella view and the stories are more especially the secret service stories are more kind of hoorah stories than anything mm-hmm. they're trying to tell you what it's like uh, you know to be in panama you know with jenna bush and come down with dengue fever in the middle of the super bowl <laughs> i mean those are just kind of interesting stories people found uh, found really uh, funny some found them uh, some found them heartwarming the dan bongino show debuting today can be heard from noon to three eastern time And
1: you can find easy Amazon links to Dan Bongino's books at our website, heardeverything.com. Is this the first time you've heard an episode of Now I've Heard Everything? Well, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, a primer on how to be funny. From comedian, entertainer, pianist, and first Tonight Show host, my 1987 interview with Steve Allen. This is one of the fascinating things about humor and comedy. You can't be scientific about it. The very fascination of it is partly for this reason, that around the edges it's a little fake. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.